Hello. Hey, hello. Hey, how's it going? Hey, what's good? How are you? Uh, I'm pretty good. And you're calling from Montreal, is that right? Yeah, I'm from Montreal. What's it like there right now? Because it's like we're recording in late November. Yeah, it's pretty chill. Uh, It kind of goes on and off between snowing hardcore and then just being kind of warm. That's how Montreal is. It's not very predictable. Oh, it just kind of goes from decent. You've already gotten snow? Uh, Yeah, we've gotten a bit of snow. It's not like Toronto. It's not chill. Weather's like really not chill at all. It's never really been that way. So that's kind of how it is. Yeah, we haven't had any in New York yet. And I'm kind of dreading it. But but we'll get through winter. We'll get through it. Um, Oh, yeah, it'll be easy down there to get through winter. (laughs) That's not the same thing up here. I see it should be easy for me, but I've lost all of my winter resistance. I've lost my like plus three resist ice um, just from having moved out of toronto oh yeah all like all that good american weather kind of uh sort of spoiled you a bit yeah a little bit a little bit a little bit uh well it makes up for literally everything else in this country mm-hmm. so yeah of course um so <laughs> before we get into uh everything i wanted to ask you about your username on twitter.com right now yeah because it is uh for people who who don't follow you uh sonic adventure okay first of all it's all caps um and and it really takes advantage of the new like the new extra long uh twitter username function yeah because it it is sonic adventure 3 continues to live comma the movement yeah could you uh could could you uh tell me a little bit about that oh my gosh (laughs) that's a really that's that's a really that's a thing to bring up for the first thing the first thing to talk about it's because there's sorry. like a lot no it's just the there's thing is like some pack though yeah so sometimes people they say hey hey zelani like you're into that sonic thing tell me about the sonic thing and i'm like no you don't want to know about the sonic thing like this is like well, like you don't want to come into the hole you know like that <laughs> what but really though um it's about what it is is that um the, the simplest way i can put it is that it's a really fun and exciting way to be able to channel the very real desire to have a third Sonic Adventure game that's sort of emblematic of a very particular sensibility from a certain part of the Sonic fandom. And so, because the Sonic fandom has its own discourse, like its own dialectic. But like any like any kind yeah, of like no, space, absolutely. you know, like, you know, and so there's this kind of thing where it's like, you know, if you grew up playing a lot of the 3D Sonic games like I did, Sonic Adventure 2, for a lot of people, is considered like a really, really high point. And it's considered a high point that never really got its due, as in it never really got like, I mean, it's good, but it's also like a game from 1999. And so it never got the game that came after it that would be, that would really build upon like the really strong, you know, sort of sensibilities and design sensibilities that it had there were a lot of like strange works that came after it that would be too long to go into. And so the idea is that you want the Sonic Adventure 3, you know, it's like Sonic Adventure 3 represents for me personally, it represents Sonic, you know, taking the boldest and the grandest and the most important path that it can possibly take. (laughs) Yeah. And I call it, I call it, I call it the movement because everyone, because I'm a socialist, I, can, I get, or at least I get down with socialism. And, you know, when you're arguing people about socialism, they tell you, oh, it's ridiculous, you know? 
and they just, then they throw you all this bullshit. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast. Oh, you can't, please. Okay. Encourage. So, you know, th- you know, so she, three people show you all this bullshit, all this thing, you know, about, you know, people just, they, they just kind of recycle all their weird, like, anti-communist propaganda at you. And, like, whatever, right? But, you know, just as I, just as, like, sort of you push for certain kinds of sort of, like, social ideas that are not considered by the mainstream, you also push for Sonic Adventure 3. Because people don't take it seriously. Everyone thinks I'm playing. You know what I'm saying? Yo. Yeah. Yo, okay? You look at the poll, okay? I, I've been tweeting about it all day. No one's been faving it. But they know now, okay? There's a Everyone, poll? Yeah, no, because there's like the Sega Bits poll that says, what do people want? Thousands of people voting. People say they want Sonic Adventure 3. People think I'm playing when I'm saying that this game is the future. Okay? And so, you know, yeah, that's like, that's kind of the deal. Um, I think that's, I think maybe that would be a good way to explain it. Yeah. And so the thing is that people don't take the idea of having another Sonic Adventure game seriously. Is what I'm trying to say, that's what I'm trying to say. I get and so it. when I you, when you it. say, yeah, Sonic Adventure three, you're kind of like pushing against yourself. You're telling people, I don't care what you think. I don't care if you don't take this seriously. I know I'm right. That's what it means to be a Sonic fan. You know, you're right. You never tell me you're wrong. <laughs> that's absolutely what it means to be a sonic fan yeah and so like you know you know this is this is the way to go and you're gonna keep pushing for it that's what the movement is so that's that's i love that and um yeah so full communism and sonic adventure 3 i think is is are the the tenets of our platform the planks (laughs) a little bit it's it's sort of become the it's sort of become the thing of my twitter my Twitter has sort of changed a lot. It's sort of like went in a lot of places over the past maybe five years or so. But it's sort of become this thing where it's like Sonic and then, oh yeah, Venezuela elections and then Sonic <laughs> and again. Then back and to Sonic, like, yeah. And it's like, oh, these liberals, they don't understand, you know, how, you know, production exploitation works and then it's back to Sonic again. Uh, and then I talk about anti-fascism is back to Sonic. So it's kind of like that's how it kind of it works. <laughs> that's sort of how my Twitter is at the moment. Yeah. Well, it's funny because um, last week I was talking to doc future about sonic and uh, he also is someone who is like deeply invested in in sonic but he talked about how like you know it's very weird where you started off with like you know the first few sonic games were just like attempts to create this mascot that would sell consoles and i think that's probably how a lot of people still think about that character is it's kind of this like this guy who has attitude and he's like a blue hedgehog and um, but then you get up to like some of the most recent games in the series, like you know, like a Sonic Forces, and uh, you've got like Knuckles saying that like, oh, we've got to break into this internment camp to like rescue people from from Eggman's regime, and it's just like I guess in ways that always has been there because if you look at the comics and some of the TV shows and stuff, it is like a much more militaristic kind of world. But like the that franchise has just gone in so many interesting and to many people i think bizarre directions over yeah. the years yeah yeah i think i mean personally my opinion has always been at least like what's been communicated in my writing is that they're like you know the best like the really simple way to explain it is that they're kind of i've always seen sort of two different perspectives on sonic and one of them is the idea that he's just kind of this meaningless mascot right he's just like this weird symbol as in he's like sort of but simple in that weird like french postmodernist way of like he's sort of like a like what do they call it like a, a signifier, a signifier like, yeah. yeah like it's like a signifier or some kind of like replacement thing you know he's just this like weird like pop icon that just kind of gets placed out on the screen and he just runs around and he just has this he has this one motif about him which is that he's blue and he smiles 
with the smirk and he runs around. And then there's a whole other part of Sonic, which is asserting that it's actually a fiction. It's like very much like a large fantasy fiction with its own like very important like political and like historical implications. And like Sega and Sonic Team has always kind of and people, Sonic games have always kind of like people say that it's been a tug between one or the other, but a close look at Sonic games will show that it's always been the fiction more than it has been the stupid mascot thing. And the stupid mascot thing has just been people sort of underreading the games essentially. And like that doesn't mean you have to overread them or like read too much into them because that'd be weird, right? But I think people sometimes think that Sonic is kind of like a Mario thing. What Mario actually is a bunch of signifiers, right? Mm-hmm. It's him with like the sombrero hat and, you know, with the sort of, uh, you know, with the Calypso music in the back, you know, it's just a, you're just kind of like, you know, taking and replacing a bunch of stuff and like, you know, like a Lego block. Sonic isn't actually that and never has been that. Um, it's always actually been a fiction, even when it's just suggesting it, you know, that's always been the point of it. And so it's actually natural when Sonic goes into 3D, right? which is the deal, when Sonic goes into 3D, it's actually extremely natural for Sonic to expand his fiction, you know? But everyone has these weird feelings about it, and, you know, it goes back and forth, and it's like, you know, and you spend the entire 2000s decade, you know, kind of debating all these really ridiculous questions and such, you know? That's that's just what I think about it. That's so interesting, because I've never really thought about it that way, because something that I think has come up on this show, like, a few times is, like, why is the Sonic fandom the way it is if you compare it to something like the Mario fandom? And I think that is so true that, like, the Mario universe has always been just these sort of images and these, like, stock forms. And it's, um, you know, there there have been people who have talked about how, like, some of the games are actually drawing on the idea of theater and, like, reenacting these these sort of, like, very, like, straightforward stories and then you have things like mario is playing golf with like his nemesis now or like driving go-karts and things and it it really is more about these these characters sort of doing things and they just sort of represent oh this is the hero this is the princess this is the the villain but they're all just being uh, put into different settings whereas something like sonic the very first time we get a true 3d sonic game we get this just bizarre incredible epic plot that like if you take it and compare it to something like mario 64 it's that game is very much just bowser kidnapped the princess again or even something like mario galaxy it's like bowser kidnapped the princess again and when you look at mario or sonic adventure it's like oh you know that guy who kept capturing animals and putting them in robots and he's trying to like industrialize the world well, he awakened some ancient evil god, and he's using it to take over the world. But then there's this metaphor of like these forces beyond our control that like science can't quite contain. And there's all this stuff about ancient societies, and um, it just and I, I really, think... <laughs> I really like your description of that. You, you give it more credit than I do. I find Sonic Adventure <laughs> like I find Sonic Adventure tonally. I love the game. I think it's great, actually, but. I find it tonally to just to be kind of like a little bit kind of, uh, you know, it, it could be a little bit more like self-aware with the way it does things. Oh, like absolutely. When you, the thing is when you describe it, and this is the great thing, right, about these games, okay, mm-hmm. is that when you describe it in text, it's like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> but when you play it, it's like, oh, okay. Like, it doesn't really execute it in this way that, like, really hits you, you know. And so Sonic Adventure, like, as a first step for something, I think it was pretty neat. 
you know. But its story never really stood out to me in the way that the sequel did, even though I like both games pretty well, um, you know. But you're right; that's that's actually totally it. Um, that, that's one hundred percent it. You know, I, I feel like the theater thing with Mario. When people say that, it kind of I feel like it's sort of uh, given a little too much credit. But that's oh point. sure, yeah, no, yeah, you know? it is definitely an attempt to justify the ways that these characters are just like. And so the thing is, like, you have to, I just wanted to note, like, you know, the thing is that, because I just remember what I wanted to note, which is that, you know, the, the, the point is that you want to embrace the fact that it's a fiction, right? Mm. And so one of the nice things about the fandom now, after a few years or so, when everyone who played Sonic Riders and thought it was pretty cool got to a certain age, is that people actually think Sonic having a fiction is cool, you know, or Sonic building a fiction is actually a pretty neat thing. You know, um, and so when Sega embraces that, that's like the first step, right? It's saying, oh, we do actually have to give a shit about making a fiction. Like, we have to care about this. You know what I mean? Like we have to invest in this. You know, we have to invest in the long-term implications of the stuff that we're showing in the game. Unlike Mara, we don't have to do that at all. You know, you just kind of do something and throw it away for the next game, right? When it comes to fiction, you know, that's like the first step. And the second step is actually doing it well. <laughs> That's a whole other deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the, the sort of yeah. black, right? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah that's kind of like the entire history, right? Of Sonic from like '99 to like now 11, right? It's like you know, I mean, it's like for at least around 10 years or so. so that's kind of like the other thing, and that's like a whole deal. But you know, Sonic Forces, which I haven't played yet because I've been playing Shadow the Hedgehog. Everyone's oh, been playing no. Sonic Forces. Oh yeah, oh yeah, baby, oh, getting no. into it. Um, you know, yeah. So I've been playing Shadow the Hedgehog for a piece. I asked people on Twitter, I said, well, what do people want to see? Do they want to see Sonic Forces? Do they want to see Sonic Mania? Which I'm also almost finishing because I'm really slow like that. And people wanted to piece out the headshot. People wanted the Shadow of the Headshot piece. Now, let me tell you, okay? Let me tell you this, okay? You go on YouTube. Go on the Sonic 06 YouTube channel. Not the channel, but like the video. You search in Sonic 06. You search up the videos, the cutscenes. You look at people talking and people are talking about this game, Okay what is like the worst game ever made or something people are like really invested like they really care like they're they're not they don't think it's the best thing ever but they're like intrigued and they're interested and they ask questions totally crazy okay like i'm on twitter i'm like what do people want me to read what do people want me to write about for my next article because i just write about you know whatever i want i don't really have to worry about game journalism stuff you know and so people i think oh you know people want to know about the new sonic forces game people want to read about shadow the hedgehog the video game from 2005 with him with the AK rifle and stuff. That's what people want to read for me, you know? Like it's re- I was actually really surprised, but you know, I think that's just that just kind of proves my point, to be <laughs> honest. Um Yeah, I have watched LPs of I think maybe every Sonic game because uh, there's an LPer that I really like named Clement J64 and he does basically just Sonic games and uh last winter I just got into this space where I just needed to watch all of them. And um, so I did see the Shadow of the Hedgehog one. And for people who who aren't familiar, that is famously a game built around a character that was introduced in Sonic Adventure 2 as uh, cool badass Sonic, despite the fact that Sonic was kind of originally cool badass Sonic. Uh, one, of the, one of the, yeah. <laughs> and it's also the well, game where they uh, gave him, where they decided, oh, it's 2000. I think this was 2006 or so. 2005. 2005. Right? 2005 oh, it's 2005. Yeah. You know what we need to do is give Sonic, except evil, cool Sonic, a gun. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, you know, in my opinion, so the thing is, is that, like, I don't want to, like, 
dismiss people, you know, when they say stuff, but everyone gets it wrong. You know what I mean? Like, when people like to describe Shadow, Shadow, as far as I'm concerned, is like the great, one of the greatest things Sonic has ever done. I mean, Shadow, <laughs> he, it really, I mean, he really is, like, he really is one of, like, the most, like, he really is, like, one of the best, like, like, exports of Sonic media. Okay, okay. He's not, like, the best, but he's one of the best, right? Mm-hmm. That Sonic has ever really done. Because he's actually not cool, sad Sonic. He's, like, w- what he is, is he's, like, a really heartfelt and tragic character who goes through this incredible arc. I mean, like, he has lines in Sonic Adventure 2 that are totally off the wall. And I don't mean because they're crazy and all, they're ridiculous. I mean, they're off the wall because they're actually, like, you know, the person who voices him. I'm pretty sure doesn't voice him again, actually. Um, you know, and I don't remember what his name is. You know, does a really good job sort of, like, you know, communicating, you know, Shadow's sort of, uh, Shadow's mindset in a way that isn't sort of overdone, which is incredible. It always blows your mind because of video games. Voice acting is pretty terrible, you know? Everyone always sort of overdoes it. People call it overacting, you know, um, which happens a lot in other kinds of video games. But Shadow, when he talks, he just talks normally. Like, he doesn't he doesn't feel like he's playing up something, you know? And so Shadow goes through this thing where Dr. Eggman finds him, right? You know, and he, brought, and he comes up and he, has, <laughs> and he has the line about the skate shoes, right? Or, like, he comes, or Shadow sort of comes out of his grave. Like, it's almost like, it's really, it's incredible. Listen, okay? <laughs> that, that, no, because that scene in Sonic Adventure 2 is really well done because the camera, you know, is showing Eggman behind this massive door, right? With this incredible music, like, rumbling behind it. And then the whole door, like, splits open with, like, smoke coming behind it. And Eggman walks into this giant, dark, empty room and he presses a button. And then this whole, com- this square hole comes into the ground. And there's this great, it looks like a grave, like a cyber mm-hmm. grave. Because it's colored and it's full of weird pipes and everything. And inside is where Shadow has stayed for like 50 years because of some fucked up thing that happened in this space station in space, you know? And so he comes out, you know, and he says, I will grant you one wish, my master. Which, like, it's a good line to have because it communicates a certain relationship that Shadow has with the world around him that he's used to and how that relationship and that conflict changes over time and then he says behold my power while this while the camera looks at his skate shoes which is fantastic um (laughs) but 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 you know but there's another camera angle that's really good too that's important which is the top looking down camera angle that looks down on eggman on the right on the left side of the screen on the right side of the screen you see the large depth of the hole in which shadow has been buried in for 50 years i mean it's like you know what I mean? But it's not even just that. His whole his whole arc is that he's kind of, you know, I mean, he makes jokes in the game too, right? And he smiles a lot too. He actually has these like weird smirky moments as well. You know, like he's a rounded character. He's a real rounded character, which is not something that Sonic has a lot of, you know? Like it doesn't, it's not really something that Sonic Adventure has very much of either. You know, people like to, you know, um, point at, uh, you know, the robot. I don't remember what the robot's name is. Shout out to John, John Paul person uh you know it's kind of like you know it, it's and so you know but most of the characters in sonic adventure a little bit flat you know but shadow comes in having these feelings and emotions and these conflicts you know like he's dealing with stuff he's dealing with the trauma of his past which informs what he does now which is the kind of character development you don't see in video games right of like oh like i'm dealing with this thing that's informing what i think of the world now and informs my decisions in the future I mean, what kind of video, what do video games do that other than, you know, a lot of RPGs that are known for good story and such like that? When it comes to action games in 2000 and late 90s, you know, hard to, hard to come by. 
So, you know, in my opinion, Shadow is really good. And he ends, he ends Sonic Adventure 2 by sacrificing himself for the world. That last boss fight with the music, a little corny, but the whole point is that Shadow essentially, this is his debut, and he dies in the same game. He lives and dies in the exact same game, which is such the, which is still one of the boldest things. Yeah, it's a shame that that's they not, had that's to go like in and done. just, uh, it's a shame <laughs> you they know? had to go and then just like totally destroy the poignance of that by uh, just bringing him back to life. Yeah, um, in and, the next game. But. Yeah, there's a lot of weird kind of stuff around it, you know, and and it kind of always sort of undercuts, you know, those two facts, right? Which is that Shadow's whole kind of the way Shadow kind of like exists in Sonic Adventure Two is just so thoughtful and so mature. It's so mature to kill a character like that in the same way that you resurrect him in a Sonic the Hedgehog game. That all it just communicates is like the you know like the the dream, the movement, right? It's like we're taking. Like, we're really being thoughtful about this fiction. We understand this is a fiction more than it is a mascot who runs around and smiles and shit. You know what I mean? And Shadow kill- and Shadow dying in the same game for reasons that are communicated to you and understood, you know, this is the culmination of that. That's kind of like what that game was sort of telling me. But I love Shadow. I love, I love, I love how rounded he is. I love, I love the death that he has in that game. And then you kind of see it in Sonic Heroes, and you kind of see it in Shadow the Hedgehog too. But then after that, it kind of disappears. And then of course, when you watch shows like Sonic Boom, which like I try not to talk about Sonic Boom the TV show because I just talk shit about it all the time, and I try not to like talk shit all the time about it because people get really touchy about it. But I think <laughs> it's a pretty terrible show. I don't. Think. I think it's pretty awful. But the thing about the show, of course, is that you know, is that it's kind of. It's so weird. It's like it, it shows such a weird like disdain for like its own audience. It's not it's not really clear who it's for, like what it's made for. It's very yeah, but that's one of the, the sense I've gotten from it is like yeah. this is okay, well it's a children's show, but then the creators seem to like really delight in like doing these little winking nods to like yeah. the adult fandom. Right. And so and so the thing is, is that it's neither a good a decent children's show, right? Or a decent actual like decent sonic show either, right? So it becomes neither, right? And so I think Sonic Boom for me is a representation of a sort of lack of sort of creative ambition and sort of like Sonic Boom is a representation of we just gave up. Like we think this thing is stupid and we don't really care anymore about it and we're just going to make jokes about it that kind of like totally undersell it because it's e- it's easier to undersell Sonic than it is to actually push it, right? It's easier to undersell Sonic than to do the effort and the work into making something that's actually good. Um <clears throat> And so, you know, in the episode where Shadow's there, Eggman is like, Shadow's so cool. Wow, I love Shadow. And Shadow's like, hmm, I'm mean and cool. And he takes pictures of him. You know, it's like a real, it's a real, uh, what's it called? Like a flanderization, like a sitcomization of Shadow and everyone around him, right? Because the writers of the show, they only, you know, they don't really understand any of these characters. And so they just reduce them into their like most like, uh, what's the word? Uh, non non common denominator, most common denominator parts, and so they think, oh, okay, that's how we're going to do Shadow, and so it's kind of like, you know, and so that's what people see with Shadow as. But the truth is that he's pretty great, you know. But you know, I understand him from his, you know, from his sort of debut, and so that's how I feel. 
but yeah that, that's that's funny that's why i like shadow a lot personally. i think you might have redeemed that character in my eyes despite the fact okay. that, I, that i still uh blame his introduction for uh turning knuckles into uh from this like cool guy into just like a yeah well a i listened to that ep- <laughs> I, I, I listened to that episode of your two show where you talked about that and i thought that was a really good point i thought that, i thought that was like really insightful right which is that he kind of like replaces knuckles and so like when shadow when shadow comes in like that like there's there's sort of like a system of roles of like where each character fits within like the natural like sort of like plot or like the sort of the entertainment part of the plot and then when shadow comes in it all just kind of gets messed up and they don't really recover from it you know but like you can fix it if you just take the time to write decent stories and think about the character but they can't do that and so everything just kind of gets into a mess and so you're totally right about that too you know that he kind of like takes knuckles spot you know in terms of that and then knuckles and then knuckles kind of has this weird moment too and he doesn't really seem to find a splitting anymore and that's kind of sad you know because i like knuckles too you know did i ever tell you that my brother he has dreadlocks he has tiny dreads kind of like chief keef that's uh-huh. like the thing now to do and he has it because of knuckles that and so is incredible and so yeah yeah he's one of those things where, where like like it's not or like he like when he started getting dreads like my brother used to love knuckles my older brother like he was a big fan of knuckles like enough and, like, that was a big thing for him for eventually just doing Tiny Dreads. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I always like that story, too, because it's, like, it's one of those things that just, it just shows, I just, it's just for the culture. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's one of those things I always like to put out there. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh, we are actually going to throw to a brief message from our sponsors real quick. And we'll be back after that to uh, keep talking. Hey gang, just jumping in here in the middle of the episode because Woodland Secrets has a sponsor this week, The Adventures of Liara Rue, which is a new webcomic about and partly by the titular Liara Rue, who's not just a webcomic character, but a real person. And Liara is here with me today to talk about it. So hi, thanks for coming on. Hi, thank you for inviting me you're super welcome and thank you for for sponsoring the show this week so tell tell me a little bit about this comic that you're doing so um i'm a sex worker and i have a lot of shenanigans that go on in my life both at work and in my general day-to-day um and for a while i just wrote uh like erotic stories about them but i was talking with a friend of mine who is a comic artist and I was like it would it would be really cool if we could make like a sexy queer comic about uh my life and she was really excited about the idea so we uh we we started working on like a shorter couple of page like an eight page story and uh that's what's up on the website right now so these adventures include things like maybe turning into a deer is that one of your sort of (laughs) day-to-day yeah yeah the the comic is definitely going to veer off into the the magical and the surreal and science fiction realms uh i feel like i have i i am very prone to daydreaming so there's gonna be a lot of times where uh you know it's still about my life but it's gonna be a little more fantastical than uh than my concrete experience <laughs> <laughs> and i really love that dreamy quality of the comic um it's 
the at least the the pages that are up right now, the story that's up now, it's sort of just an infinite scroll kind of set up with different size panels and some of them are sort of more expansive and it's like there's not really much text i think the only text there is 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 in japanese um and so it's very like dreamy and has this really great feeling that i think a lot of uh listeners of our show are really going to like it reminds me of um of a lot of other kind of open um you know web-based comics that have been really cool to me over the past few years yeah, I, I want it to be really um, experimental. And right now, the comic artist and I were still, uh, Aubrey, uh, we're still working out like all the kinks of storytelling, like how we're going to work and tell the story together. But I think we want to get pretty uh, experimental. I don't know if you're <laughs> familiar with Homestuck, um, but I really like how they have experimented with using the web as a medium. And I think I want to take the comic in a similar direction eventually. I would wager that more than a few of our listeners are familiar with Homestuck. <laughs> for so... better or for worse. <laughs> no, yeah, there's been a great Homestuck renaissance lately. Um, and so you're right. Oh, really? It, yeah, well, they had that game that came out. And you, I think you're totally right that Andrew Hussey's work is a really interesting one in terms of comics online. And it's really cool to see other people doing experimental stuff. So... Um, if people want to check it out, it's at adventuresofliaru.com, and uh, that link is in our show notes. And um, if people want to want to learn more or want to support the comic, how can they do that? Well, right now we have a Patreon set up where people can subscribe, and they'll uh, be supporting the comic, and they'll also get to see the uncensored version of the comic. Um, there hasn't been a need for censorship yet, but it's going to get pretty racy so if you want to see some nipples or uh other erogenous zones <laughs> um uh it's it's five bucks a month top top five erogenous zones um the brain is oh the, abs- the i'm a sapiosexual for sure i'm not, I'm not actually a sapiosexual <laughs> thank but. you for clarifying <laughs> um yeah you know all of them all of the good ones the nips the butt um both both cheeks um yeah but in all seriousness um it's a really beautifully drawn comic and i bet it's gonna be really cool when it um goes into like more erotic territory so people should definitely check it out um thank you so much for coming on and telling us about this and for supporting the show of course my pleasure thank you okay well we're back um, so, uh, what else, what else are you up to lately besides uh, uh, writing about Shadow the Hedgehog? Uh, let's see. Well, I mean, I haven't written about it yet. I still need to play through it. I'm almost finished it, essentially. So I just need to kind of play through it. It's a difficult game to play through. It takes a lot of patience to play through these games and do it, you know, and not just like throw the controller out. Um, other than that, um, I do a lot of designing, a lot of graphic design, um, I like it. And so it's kind of nice, actually. It's sort of related to that. I do a lot of visual design now. Um, and then also uh, I do, let's see, I've been sort of up to a lot of things in Montreal's sort of uh, um, sort of social landscape in a certain ways as well. And that's kind of nice. Um, you know, I wanted to talk to you about. What's that? Okay. Because the thing is like, okay. Because the thing is like, I used to, it's just kind of funny that i'm on this podcast 
after I'm on the show, you know, because like I read your first piece years ago because we used to write for the same site, which was Nightmare Mode. Oh my was, god, like, yeah. Yeah, That's that was years ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was like in twenty thirteen. And I remember the first piece you wrote, which was a prototype piece. Um, oh my god, know. yeah. Rehabilitating a truly terrible game by trying to read it as queer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, I mean, that's that's, that's, how, that's how you kind of wrote stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. Okay. That's true. <laughs> that's totally okay, you know? Um, but yeah, like, I just thought that was kind of funny. And I spent a lot of time lately sort of, like, reflecting on, like, the time since I started writing for that website and other websites sort of since then. I was at, a, I was at an event um, uh on Sunday. It was called Mega. It was kind of like the sort of like indie game showcase. It's a bit like Indicate and Pax, but it's not as good as either of them. It was kind of this weird sort of melange because it was like very corporate. Like they had a lot of really seriously indie games there. You know, stuff that people really made on their own time that they wanted mm-hmm. to show. And they also had Tomb Raider. <laughs> and so they had like both of them and other stuff in the same space. And it was like they were playing like pop and anime music. So was it a convention? But it wasn't really a convention because it was too small, you know? And it was like, they had like some telephone company in the back, you know? So it was like, it's like one of those things that happens, you know, when, especially in a, in a province like Quebec, you know, with like the way the industry functions, you know, the way things start to get funded. It's like very, it's a weird melange between this sort of like entrepreneurial thing mm. that sort of goes on, the sort of like entrepreneurial culture that gets mixed with like quote unquote indie culture. And that's why you get these weird, like sort of like, weird mutants of events that kind of go on you know mm-hmm. but like i went to the event you know with some people i knew because you know it's good to go to the stuff and check it out you know and like people came up to me well i went to one person who was making a game called infinity and i asked him oh this is a really cool game oh you know i'm really a fan of your other games and he's like why is he fan of this? you know and they said uh and he said oh you're zelani you wrote about this game about our game like two three years ago and then i went somewhere else and a, a group of people approached me and they said, oh, you're like, oh, this is Lani. Oh, we know you. We love your Sonic stuff. We're really into the stuff you write about Sonic. Like, just like, you know, at this event that I was at, you know? And I thought that was, like, really cool, you know? I was really happy about that. I guess the thing is that I've sort of, like, been in this space with my writing where, you know, I don't really have to... Because I stopped... Because a lot of people, when they get into writing about video games, you know, especially, you know, several years ago or so, you know like getting a job eventually like a well-paying job in it or making enough money in it that you could do it full-time used to be from my experience a really big sort of cultural center right of like the writing community and so this whole idea that every all the work that you do needs to eventually culminate into that was a pretty like large weight Mm -hmm. that was on people and so like just on personally like when i stopped caring about actually making money with the video game writing like it kind of like it really chilled out it really chilled me out in a lot of ways like you know and so now i could just write sonic pieces all day you know and it's kind of (laughs) fun you know because like and so there's this kind of thing that seems to happen you know over time where you know because i used because and this is other thing too there are two things that i feel like are worth mentioning that i feel like is is worth to mention one of them is that you know um before the writing I feel like, like, writing about video games you really populated sort of with a lot of freelancers. Yeah. And then a lot, and I knew a lot of those freelancers. And then over time, a lot of the people who I knew who were freelancing now actually do have staff jobs, right? Mm-hmm. And so there are two things that happen, which is that you actually either got a, you know, a real staff job working with video games, 
you know, or you went into something else because there's no money in it, you know. And personally, I went into something else and tried other ways to find money, essentially. And so the video games thing, there's no real pressure to do stuff with it anymore, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as a whole, also, that really chilled out the space, too. You know, like this is something I wanted to mention because I thought it would be interesting because we both wrote, wrote about this for kind of a while, you know, which is that, like, you know, I really, really like the video game writing space now. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's really, really good little like circle of people and it's not really a circle as much as it is sort of like a landscape of people you know and i really enjoy the discussions that happen on there and you know because of a lot of sort of different social factors everyone is really chill and people <laughs> no really people are really chill and people are like very and people are really good at having discussions with each other you know because there used i feel like you know especially because communities are basically just on Twitter now and have been for maybe since like you know the whole decade. You know, I feel like I used to sort of be part of a landscape where there was zero chill. Yeah. Reading like, said absolutely zero chill. And it was like every day people were just so angry. Just <laughs> absolutely pissed off about everything regarding video games. Just constantly, you know, like like the the video game sort of like the video game, like intellectual circles of the most radical intellectual productions, you know, were so filled with such consistent anger. Mm-hmm. And I was part of that as well. Like I've beefed with all sorts of people. Oh my gosh. No. Oh, same. I mean, yeah. I don't think yeah. any of us got through 2013 without yelling at Cliff, <laughs> Cliff Blazinski at least once. You know, I mean, like, it's just, but even, but, you know, uh, I mean, some of the developers and, like, other writers and such, you know what I mean? Like, I've beefed with so many folks, like, you know, like, around, and it's just, like, it's just, like, kind of one of those things where, you know, it was just, it was something that I just did, you know, because it always just felt like, it used to, it used to feel like everything you did, every step you took was so righteous for some particular Mm. reason that was hard to explain, you know? And, like, everything you did had this chip on your shoulder. You always had something to prove, like, to the world and society about <laughs> these video games that are bad and awful and, you know, all the guns and the violence and, you know, and the sexism and this and that, you know. And so all these things, all these social factors, you know, but over time, something seems to change, you know, like, it's sort of like, and it feels like there's a lot less pressure, too. And I don't mean pressure to do something, but rather just pressure, you know in terms of the way people interact with each other and the general mood of people around who write about video games and talk about writing about video games, you know? Um, and I think that's good, actually, even though, like, I do feel like a lot of, you know, I don't feel like there is as much of, like, a radical sort of, like, you know, this large radical angle to everything with video games as there used to be. But I'm also okay with that because I feel like a lot of the people who I knew who I consider comrades actually run a lot of stuff now, you know? And so when, you know, when you're actually at the helm of something like large website or something, you know, like you're taking that sensibility with you in some kind of way, you know? And I think because of that, a lot of websites now are actually really cool. You know, like I read them and I think a lot of them are actually pretty dope, you know? And so I'm pretty down with that. Um, I just thought that was worth mentioning, you know, because that was something that was on my mind and I thought would actually be pretty relevant to be able to mention. Um, Yeah. Well, so why do you think that's changed? What do I think? What's changed? Well, why do you think there's been this general kind of chilling out? Well, I think 
um, when you're, when you sort of perceive a lot of very big and very real social and political and material issues, and that those issues are also, whether directly or indirectly tied to your own social issues, which is that I see a lot of problems in the space. And also I'm here to make money and I don't have a lot of money. Mm. That creates the pressure and it creates the anger and it creates, you know, a lot of the tension, you know, and the weird and the very like bone to pick kind of nature of everyone who's like all in this space and they're all bone to pick and they're all trying to make money off freelance and they're all at each other's throats every day, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but when the sort of splitting happens where a lot of people actually do find real employment and other people find employment in something else, who's like whatever with this games thing, you know. When that stops, when that stops becoming a thing, people don't lose a sensibility. You know, they don't suddenly just forget about all the stuff they care about. But, you know, the way they express it, you know, and the way they interact and the way they understand their relationship with other people changes in a lot of ways, too. So it's about money, basically, what I'm saying. It's about, like, how much, you know, it's, it's, it's really about your ability to support yourself and your ability to take care of yourself and how that changes for people over time. You know what I'm saying? So that's, that's actually why I think that, that is happening all the time. Yeah, it becomes less of like a Hobbesian war of all against all. Yeah. I don't know who Hobbes is, but I guess <laughs> some asshole. <laughs> okay, I see. A lot of assholes in philosophy. I don't Yeah. I only, I, only re- I don't read philosophy, I only read critical theory. That's what I tell people. For the best, probably. I just I took a um I minored in poli sci in uh okay, in, I see. In university, so I had to take a lot of political theory classes. So Yeah, yeah, I see, I see. Um yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, I'm not really, like, I, I'll occasionally write about games lately. Like, I'll write for Zeal or I'll write a piece for Kotaku or something. But yeah. I'm not really in that space as much anymore. But from what I have seen, it does seem to be that way. Like, it seems like, yeah, either people are having are getting jobs and they're, you know, not as much worried about money or they're doing other things and then treating writing as, as more of an expressive um, kind of work rather outlet. than their material outlet. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of how it is. Yeah, I don't know. The landscape has changed a lot because, I mean, you look back even five years ago and like now to have to have like a, a, one of, I would say, the three most influential gaming sites run by someone like Austin Walker to yeah. have Kotaku uh, have people like um, like Riley and Gita and Patricia on board. Um it's it's wild like how how much the the editorial landscape too has changed yeah well i mean the thing is i've never really been able to get a staff job so i can't totally like (laughs) i don't i don't i don't know if i'm able to completely explain like how those things kind of happen over time but i think that um over time you know the way that video games writing used to be like in like 2000s was like so rote you know and i think like you know especially especially because of something as niche as video game writing i do think that over time like you know because you know, there's this sort of like, you know, you have these like really underground scenes of writers who are writing all this interesting stuff and eventually they have to get absorbed, you know, mm-hmm. up into these large structures or also structures will just die off because they have, you know, they don't have any, you know, they don't, they don't have any actual ways to be able to, you know, produce decent content and decent ideas because mm-hmm. the people they do take in really suck, you know. Um, and shout out to Zeal too. Everyone should support Zeal. Um, is, is patient.com slash machine. You get five dollars to it every month. Zeal is, is one of the most important sites I've ever written. Um, oh, also, 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's that's what I would say. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah, no, Zeal is great. Uh, Av and Jay are both uh, friends of the network, and um, yeah, I wrote a piece for them uh, a few months ago. That was uh, it was really fun, and it was the kind of thing that I think would be hard to pitch anywhere else. So yeah, exactly. You know, you know, you know the the reason why Zeal is important was because it was sort of like um, one of the reasons it was important. It sort of like did this thing, you know, Avi wrote this piece years ago about a quote unquote a seven out of 10 or something, maybe it was a tweet or something, you know, it seems like something not very significant, but it kind of was because at least for me, it was like significant, you know, because it kind of like reconstituted a new context for talking about games of a particular era, which is like from like the mid nineties to like the late two thousands, right. In a very particular time, people understand it. The sort of, actually maybe because there are gamers who people aren't gamers into this podcast. Sorry, hang on with gamers. Um, you know, there's a particular era of video games that's sort of associated with a certain kind of economics as mm-hmm. in a certain particular kind of budget where video games aren't astronomically high to produce. And so there's a sort of like, you know, there's a more sort of variety of games with a variety of a leverage between quality and sort of budget quality and artistic quality. Mm-hmm. And those things have, you know, come in, more interesting variations than they do now. Um, they got pretty, you know, I mean, the games are pretty cool, but, you know, the games of a particular era, I think, were sort of, are sort of defined by that now. Um, and so, you know, the reason, well, the reason why I like Zeal a lot was sort of because, like, it was a space that I was able to, I've been able to sort of, like, cultivate, like, that kind of writing, you know? Uh, and people love it. And that's the other thing, too, that I think is important. People love it. People love it when you write about a game for the PlayStation 2. <laughs> like they, can, they really can't get enough of it. I mean, honestly, you know, it's just one of those things where, you know, and, and big sites take it up, too, now. You know, they write about, oh, yeah, I remember, you know, that, that, you know, really messed up Halo 2 expansion, you know, or like, oh, what about that game on the PS2, that sequel, you know, that action game that no one remembers. You know, like, people love that kind of stuff because people do remember it. And for some reason or other, it always seems to trigger, you know, it seems to trigger some kind of, some kind of almost like a permission to be able to have a more critical angle to something, Mm. maybe because of the time or the distance or something like that, you know? And so that's really legit. That's really dope. You know what I'm saying? And so it's kind of uh, like, yeah. And so that, and so that's why looks like that have been really important as well. You know, Um, I feel like I want to, I should mention it just because like, I think people would want me to mention it. And so I think it's important, which is that I ran a magazine mm-hmm. from like 2013 to like 2016. It ran for two or three years called the Arcade Review. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And the Arcade Review was cool. Um, I liked it a lot. It was really good. <laughs> I don't matter. I don't want to like, you know, to a horn or something. But like it was a really no, really it was good. good it was really yeah. good. Yeah. The thing, okay. So right. So the thing about the arcade review is that people talk about it. Like they talk about PT now, and so like you know PT the game. It was the the weird. It was Silent it was Hill it was the, yeah. It was the game from Kohijo Kojima that was out, and so you know, and then when the game got taken down, everyone loved it, but then it got taken down. You can't get it anymore mm-hmm. on the store because of Konami. And so when people talk about PT, they go, Oh yeah, PT man, fucking you know so people just randomly in random places like on podcasts or something i just hear random mentions of the arcade review like oh man the fucking arcade review that was dope man you know it was like one of those things you know it's pretty legit you know i'm pretty down with that um it's good to know you know um but yeah like the arcade review is really really cool and 
I'm really happy that I did it. And I feel like it kind of, it took too long for me to really say that I'm really, really happy that I did it, you know, because everyone, because, you know, it didn't, like, it didn't get a lot of attention during the time. But whenever people mention it, people have nothing but good things to say about it, which I'm really grateful for, you know. And I feel like it's worth saying that because, you know, when I closed the magazine, you know, I, I had, like, for me, it was like, the writing, all I thought was the writing in this magazine is so fucking good. Like, it's like a mix. It's like art criticism, but for video games, it's like this mix of like something like a new inquiry or like an M plus one, like one of these like really good, like sort of, you know, like grad journals, not like a graduate, like academic journal, but you know, these kinds of journals that come out, mm-hmm. right. Or like, um, you know, other kind of literary magazines that come out, these radical literary magazines. It has a sort of, the finesse and the political awareness of that kind of writing, you know, but it then it's applied to this really sharp and very well edited art criticism for video games. And so it was like, I mean, it's just like every, all the pieces that are written, which is constantly just blew my mind, you know? And I, I, I thought to myself, well, this is the fucking future. <laughs> it was in the future, you know, sort of, but you know, as far as I'm concerned, it was like, oh my God, this is it, man. Like the writing that comes out of this, like this whole like context of working and doing things just fucking up there, man. Like, you know, but because of that, and I and I I did a lot of things, you know, to try to get it some attention, but never got any attention. You know what I'm saying? And so it was like I did a lot of stuff, but nothing keeps you working. Mm-hmm. You know, I even put I put try to put all online later, and like even that wasn't really getting a lot of views and such. You know, and so for me, it was like this thing was either the biggest fucking success ever made, like the best thing since sliced bread, or it's a fucking failure. That was like my mindset at the time. Yeah. And so when I closed the magazine, I felt a lot of shame. Like I felt like I really fucked up. Like I mm-hmm. felt like I had this thing. And it was really good. And I didn't do a good job because it didn't blow up, you know? And so, you know, people would tell me, yeah, the art creative you. And I go, yeah, it was cool, you know? But it was only just because I felt like I didn't do enough to do it justice. But that was because I had these sky-high expectations. Because my understanding at the time, I mean, I made this cause when I was in college. Like, I was in CJEP, you know what I'm saying? That's like Quebec College. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I even started it, you know what I'm saying? So it was like the first like major project I ever did on anything ever in my life. Um, you know, and so like like I was like I was like I had all these like ideas in my head taken from, you know, when you're 19 and you're 20 and like, you know, you see all these cool art stuff that you like and and that gets a lot of attention. You want to be like that. You want to be where they are. And so, you know, if you're not getting where they are, that's your whole frame of reference. You don't really have anything else. Mm-hmm. If you're not there where they are, then you just don't, you just feel like, you know, that you wasted your time or that you wasted other people's time, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a, that's a hard thing. And I think being online does that to our sense of success um, kind of warps, not just being online, that's reductive, but there's a whole, a whole lot of factors that sort of, encourage us to see things in terms of like oh i did well if this became a mega success and is insanely popular and i failed if it didn't do those things even if it has all these myriad influences that 
continue to work on people and on the culture like years after it happened? You know, well, the thing was that video game writing at the time was so constantly sort of was so constantly concerned with this concept of success, mm-hmm. right? So like when a new like person would get hired at a website, it used to be big news. People don't care anymore. Right. But it used to be when someone got hired at a website and it was just some guy who has been around for like 10 years, you know, writing for a game pro or some shit and he just gets another job. Like it's whatever, you know, writing is, you know, oh, the game controls are good and, you know, articles, whatever, <laughs> at whatever website he wants to. Everyone got pissed off, rightfully so, because it's like, a lot of people who are really good who are getting jobs and so and so but but you know obviously that makes sense but also what it does of course is that it creates like is that the whole concept of success of making something becomes extremely important and it has a high priority in the context of the discourse and then in the dialectic um and so there's this kind of uh i think i'm using that word right um <laughs> and so it's kind of like uh yeah that's and so that, that's kind of what happens, basically. And so I think that was also the context that the magazine may have been working in as well. That at least for me, I helped, I had, I put this pressure on myself about it, you know. But I feel like it's worth saying, you know, now that I'm on a podcast, that like, I'm like extremely grateful for like the attention that, any attention that it got at all. Um, and also the, and the positive things people say about it now, I'm really grateful for that as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. So Absolutely. Well, uh, do you want to move on to the only segment that we do on this podcast? Yeah, sure. The rest of it is just free-flowing, freeform, mostly Sonic Talk. Um, Oh, well, I I hope hope it was entertaining. Uh, Oh, no. You'd be surprised how often Sonic the Hedgehog comes up on the podcast, (laughs) and that's probably my bias, but it's my show, so... Uh, if people don't want to hear about Sonic, then they can start their own show. Uh, but this segment is called Get Wrecked. Get Wrecked. It is a segment where we recommend things to our listeners, and um, they can be really anything. It could be a game. It could be another piece of media. It could be a practice. It could be um, whatever, yeah, well, whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah, well, I sort of have two things to recommend. Uh, the first thing I have to recommend is a book called Policing Black Lives by Robin Maynard. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's a really extremely important book because it catalogs the history, the long history from even before the founding of Canada to now of the subjugation of black people in Canada, specifically Mm -hmm. Canada, Mm -hmm. um, and the economy of slaves in Canada um, and the very, very intentional povertyization of black people and black communities in Canada and the exploitation of black people in Canada. And so if you live in Canada, this is as far as I'm concerned. It's a hard read. I'm not going to lie. Like, it's difficult, especially if you're also black to read about all this fucked up shit that happened to you for a long time. I mean, it's not easy to read. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, um, but I also, but maybe, maybe because one time I read it over pizza and that's all I ate and then it <laughs> affected my emotions at the time. But, you know, it's sort of when I, when I had it after I ate something, then I felt a lot better. Um, but in that sense, I also do think that, yeah, it is a, uh, it's the one of the most important historical books that you can read this year hmm. if you live in this country. Um, I think probably for Americans too, because um, living here and being from Canada, like there are Americans who think of Canada as this, um, you know, paradise of equality, and and don't know about Canada's really atrocious history. Um, 
in terms of like white supremacy, in terms of like native genocide. Um, and so probably, you know, for Americans who wanted to sort of clear up some of those misconceptions, <laughs> it seems like that would be also a good text. I was on a train. I mean, these people think they're too. I was on a train with a dude, engineer student. We were hanging out. I didn't know him that well, but, you know, we had a big march that was going to happen, a big anti-racist march that was going to happen, you know, and I knew the people who were working on it and I was trying to push it as hard as I could, you know, because like the thing is when you're doing stuff that's like really intense, like people like it's hard to get people, it's hard to explain to people like how to get into that. Yeah. But when it comes to like just a march, just come to the march. Everyone just mm-hmm. comes to march. You know, like, it's like a really chill thing you can do. And so I'm telling people like, yo, come to this thing. Like everyone should come. If you don't, if you think racism is bad, you should come to the thing. You know, and it's like, uh, and he's like, oh, well, you know, aren't we good here, Kenna? Like, aren't we cool? Like, you know, like, this is like, this is because of stuff in America. And so you have to like explain to people, you know what I'm saying? Mm. And so that's kind of the thing. And so people here think it too. A lot of, a lot of uh, minorities also believe it as well. And so there's a lot of ideology going on. And, and you know, so it takes sort of, uh, sort of meeting the history to sort of recontextualize ourselves, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and the second thing I think I'd recommend is, uh, or is it? It's on my shelf. Onimusha 2? Yeah, I would recommend Onimusha 2 um, for the PlayStation 2, which is a game I've also not finished, but it's a really good, really strong, moody action game that is kind of difficult, but it has great imagery in it, which I really love. Um, mm. It has great set scenes. It has a great way of framing the stuff that you do in a way that's very dramatic. And games, they often have trouble with imagery and framing. They, you know, like, they have trouble making something really pop in your eyes and screen, even though the graphics are good and all the shadows or whatever, but compositionally making that really attractive is something video games have a lot of trouble with. And this is a game from like 2006 or something that does it really well. And so if you go to a pawn shop, which you should, I know I'm going a bit long, but it's important. I just feel like it's important to note. If you like video games, you should go to your local pawn shop and you should buy the games there because they're like 10 bucks. They're like, like you can go there and find amazing gems, incredible stuff in a pawn shop for like five dollars or something on the PlayStation Two, you know. And so you can get it on eBay or online or something. But if you have PlayStation Two, you should get this game, Onimusha Two. And I think it's a really, really good piece of work. And I would recommend that as a particular thing. Those are the two things I recommend. Cool. Uh, well, my thing this week is going to be a piece of software called Cold Turkey. Um, as we're recording this, I'm taking a week off Twitter and, uh, we could talk about the, the politics and like the, the sort of symbolism of, of talking about taking a break from social media and sort of the righteousness that can sometimes go into that. I, that's a conversation for another time. Basically, I just decided I wanted to take a little bit of time off of Twitter. I spent a lot of time on it as <laughs> listeners of this show may know. Um, so I use the software called cold Turkey and, um, basically it lets you set up scheduled blocks for certain sites. And you can also set up like a timer block. Um, so it works in those two ways, like the pre-scheduled things. And then sort of just like, Oh, I want to block certain things for X amount of time. I set it for a week. So I'm not, uh, able to even check Twitter for a week, which, uh, for me is a really helpful thing. Um, and you know, it's kind of difficult. I think if your computer is sort of your center of work, but also like distraction and also like reading the news and all this other stuff, um, it's kind of important for me at least to carve out context of different 
time where I'm doing different things. And this is just, you know, a tool that can make that kind of thing easier. So um, it's on uh, Mac and Windows, I believe. So um, yeah, if it seems like something you'd be interested in, then um, I would encourage you to check it out. And I think there, there's like similar software as well that um, that one thing I've used in the past is called self-control. It's a little less feature rich, but um, it also gets the job done. So All right. yeah, so these are just my, my little tool recs um, for this week. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a blast. Thank you. I really hope it was uh, fun to, to talk to me on the show. I really appreciate being on here. It's pretty nice. It's cool, you know? Yeah, it was great. Um, Do you want to tell people where they can find your work online? Uh, You can find my writing on medium.com slash fengshi. So it's at F-E-N-G-X-I-I. That's also my Twitter. So if you want to follow me on Twitter or something, uh, you can do that as well. Um, I talk about Sonic a lot. People don't know this because they follow me and then they think, oh, he doesn't actually do it, but I actually do it. So if you follow me, you should know this. You don't unfollow like a you know, couple of days later, like, oh, we talk about Sonic too much. Now you know. Okay, so you have no excuse. So you've um, been informed ahead of time. Yeah, you've been informed exactly. So that's another thing. Um I do I do actual visual design um on uh eighty eight thirty three dot design. Mm-hmm. That's where my portfolio is. Um that's that's like that's what I do for money. Uh and uh, those are those are the two things. Yeah, those are the, kind of the two things I would like to recommend. Great, where people can find me. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah. Thank you again so much. And uh, yeah, yeah. I'll talk to you later. Yeah. Thank you. Take care. Huh? You too. Bye. Woodland Secrets is hosted by Merrick Kay and produced and edited by me, Nick Bravo. Woodland Secrets is a part of Stay Mean, the world's only podcast network. We're entirely listener-supported. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron of Stay Mean at woodlandsecrets.co support. For as little as three bucks a month, you'll get access to a monthly newsletter and frequent bonus episodes of our shows. If you'd like to have a message read on the show, head to woodlandsecrets.co messages. You can help people find out about the show, Please mention us on Twitter. We're at Woodland Podcast and at Stay Mean Co. Or rate and review us in iTunes. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>